Welcome to Moving Beyond Stigma, the podcast where we talk about all things mental health. I am your host, Michelle Crossman. Throughout a lot of our podcast episodes, I'd love to bring up how much art and mental health are connected and how it affects all of our lives. We as artists expose so much of ourselves to create something beautiful to help feel connected to each other and to the world around us. Today, I have the absolute honor to share the space with an incredible actor and activist, She puts in so much work and raises her voice about important issues on a very regular basis. Today, we have Annalyn McCord. Welcome to Moving Beyond Stigma. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So excited to have you. I would love to start off just with a little introduction where you can tell us about yourself, anything that you really want to share. Okay. Well, hi. Yes, my name is Annalyn McCord. Uh, My profession is that I'm an actress, but I'm actually a multidimensional being splitting the dimensions of existence of time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's just throw it all out there just mm-hmm. to begin with. Yeah. I I am so grateful to my platform as an artist to be able to speak on things that have actually become even more important than my art, even though it's fully encapsulated within my art. The issue of mental health and the journey I've been on and the roles that I'm now selectively choosing all have to do with broadening this conversation, adding new language to this conversation, mm-hmm. or inviting in conversation at all where in areas where it hasn't been something that's been discussed. And I'm I'm hoping that with the project that I, I have premiering this week, that there is a lot more conversation in my country in the United States around the issue of guns and mental health and and how mental health plays a role in some of the issues we've seen, specifically mass shootings, which is what my film is about. I have the unfortunate, fortunate, unfortunate position of playing the role of the mass shooter in the film Condition of Return that I have premiering this week and um and probably maybe on streaming by the time this is uh airing but i am really looking for center of the line conversations around this topic going to the root cause solution-based approaches what we've had is just a bunch of mud slinging yeah. politicized bs and yeah. so i'm always looking to incorporate conversations that are center line and this is one of the ones that i'm focused on right now yeah no i absolutely love that and thank you for sharing that um yeah, I was looking and researching a little bit of the film that you are working on right now and all the because you've been in press mode and doing all the interviews and all of that. So I'm sure it's been like a lot to talk about. And it is obviously a very heavy subject matter. And the one thing that I feel like is weaponized a lot is mental health when it comes to things like that, specifically mass shootings and anything along those lines. It gets very, yeah, weaponized and not actually used in the right way you know what I mean like it's so it is so intertwined but it's not being looked at like truly truly looked at in a safe way in a space where we actually want to offer help in a space where there's empathy no and I from what I can see so far it feels like there's going to be a lot of that entangled into the film as well 
Yes, it's I. I start each of my interviews off in regards to the film. Is I did not want to do this film. <laughs> I. I mean, I am those. I. I have always been incredibly selective, even before I maybe had uh, the right to be selective. I kind of came in at eighteen years old, yeah. guns blazing, no pun intended. But I was. I was just like, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm not going to do. This is what I'm interested in. This is what I'm not interested in. Yeah. And my agent's like, you do know you've done nothing yet. And I'm like, I know what my career is supposed to be about. This is it. and This isn't it. So I have always had a strong sense of what I wanted and what I didn't want. I dreamed of being an actress since I was nine years old, growing up in a trailer park where everyone was telling me that was never going to happen. And I was like, oh, really? Watch me with some middle fingers to the sky. And and so I, I had this pipe dream. And because I live in the United States of America, part of our culture is growing up believing that even if you have nothing, yep. you can Cinderella, you can make your dreams come true. And I hold dear to that. I love the Constitution of the United States. I love the stories, right, wrong, or indifferent, that I was taught as a kid. They're endearing to me. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a bigger conversation at play. And and the biggest conversation for me is why I'm on this lovely podcast, because it's about mental health. Because if you really look at it, even as, as recent as the 60s in the United States, we had gun ranges at some schools. We're teaching students gun safety, how to shoot, actually learn how to shoot right. on school property. Yeah. We were not seeing mass shootings happening 600 times a year this was not the case and we had that in schools this is very important to this conversation because i'm a gun owner and and so that's why i can bring this conversation to the center line because i grew up in a red state i've lived in blue states most of my life but i bleed purple and when we're talking about this conversation we need to bleed purple on this or we're going to bleed on this and and that's what we're seeing right now unfortunately and it and it does stem from mental health and a lot of the research that i did with having done the film and prior to the film led me to the to the discovery of the national institute of justice funded research that the doj the department of justice here in the u.s they said, we need to research this. We need to find out the root cause. What is happening? What's the common denominators? Right. And one of the number one common denominators, public suicide. Yeah. I fully believe that. They feel unseen for their whole life. Yeah. So in death, they think, well, at least I'll be seen. At least someone will acknowledge that I exist. I won't be invisible anymore. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where I pick up the conversation. And it's a little bit different than the nature of the film itself and and what she goes through. She's in a whole nother world of mental health concern that's that's perpetrated by a toxic theology. Mm -hmm. And believing in something with blind faith, but just religion when it is not met with co-creation energy can become this giving over of myself entirely to something with zero autonomy. And it does one of a few things and it, and it certainly 
makes you feel helpless at times, but it's also a cop out. Oh, for sure. It's also a cop out. It also, and it allowed my character to say, I did this horrible act, but Jesus forgive me and all is forgiven. And she knew that she was going to be forgiven. So she, she said, I don't make the rules. Like I can do this and I can be forgiven. I don't make the rules and she's not wrong, but, but what does that say about her sovereign self? She's not taking sovereign autonomy and saying, as a person, I'm not going to hurt people, my fellow beings. And that's where the mental health concern comes in. That's where you're, you know, uh, there's a, oh gosh, I just read a quote and it was the, I'm paraphrasing, but the best way to keep someone in prison is to ensure that they never know they're actually in one. Oof, damn. <laughs> yeah. If that doesn't sum up mental health issues, I don't know what does. That, uh, yeah, no, definitely. Right? Mm-hmm. We don't know we're in a prison and we're we're colored by the lenses through which we see the world. Yeah. That's all there is for us because we project our own reality with our perception. So, so what does that mean for mental health? What does that mean for my character Eve? What does that mean for myself and my own mental health journey? What does that mean for your listeners and for you and the world? It's, it's at what point do we start asking the questions that we're never taught to ask to, to unveil that we are in fact, I fight human trafficking. I fight modern day slavery. And we're in fact enslaved, but in our mind with invisible chains. Yeah. And only at that point can we hope to shift into a different trajectory, in my opinion. For sure. Wow. Yeah. That's um, such an interesting way to look at it as well. And as soon as you said it, I can just like picture that, you know, I can picture just feeling stuck and tied down. And so many of us, we can't even see it, you know, and that's, but that's where we are and the how systems are in place now, it just feeds into that invisible prison. You know what I mean? It just feeds into it more and more and more. And then if you don't know you're there, how do you get out? How do you, like, you're basically just like treading water in the middle of nowhere. And you have no idea. Like, unless you really go for it and ask for the, and ask for help. Yes. Or, or even start asking yourself questions. I always talk about, you know, obviously we're getting to know each other here on this podcast episode. So you're asking me questions. That's how we know someone. That's how you build a relationship with someone. That's how you do a podcast episode with someone. We don't ask ourselves, we don't build a relationship with ourselves. We don't ask ourselves questions. Mm. We're not taught to build a relationship with the person that we live all of our life with. Every I go, there I am right there hanging out. Most of the places I go, that little kitty cat who's staring over my shoulder is. But everywhere I go, here I am. Doesn't it behoove me to build a relationship with myself? And if you, if you start really asking, I, I, when I would speak, I did TED TED talks and and I did a college tour and I would, I would tour and speak. And uh, I, I was raising awareness for these issues, but, but one of the things I would ask, I would ask everyone, I was like, if you would be friends with the voice in your mind, if it was a person, please raise your hand. Right. Nobody ever raised their hand. Not a single soul in all of the places I've spoken all over the world. No one ever raised their hand. Breaks my heart. And it's all too 
failure. It was my own journey. It was my own story. I was the, I took the abuses that happened to me. I took the traumas that happened to me. I took the noise all around me and I compounded it within my own mind. And I became the abuser. I became the traumatizer. I became the noise. And I would say the worst, most horrific, horrible, terrible, awful things to myself about yeah. always just, just demeaning myself. And then it's like, you're laying there at three in the morning and it's like, well, in 2009 at that dinner party, and I said that joke and no one laughed. And, I was like, and it's, and it's the mind, it's the mind untrained. And I do mean that very seriously. It's yeah. the untrained mind that is so unkind. Oh, for sure. That's definitely a big thing. I talk about a lot in therapy as well. Like I, I love my therapist and she often will be like, ask me these questions. And whenever I'm bringing up something that I'm going through that involves another person, my main concern is the other person always. Right. The amount of time she's like, okay, Michelle, but what do you want? How do you feel? And I'm just like, I wait, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Let me think about it. You know, and like actually prioritizing you and your relationship with yourself, like not just obviously it's a good thing to do things for other people, make sure that they feel loved. But if you're hurting yourself to do it, that's not giving the right kind of love. And then you're not going to get the right kind of love back either or give it to yourself. And it just like puts up all these walls and it, yeah, that's very much what we are kind of taught to do. Isn't it the antithesis of love? It's it's the opposite of what love is. It is not it, love. That word has been so bastardized, mm-hmm. unfortunately, yeah. in our world. But love itself is people use the word, un, the phrase unconditional love. And I'm like, that's redundant. Actual love just is unconditional. Yeah. But we're, we're, this word is pushed into our minds by people that are not unconditional with us. And then we determine that love is mm tagged on with all these conditions and strings and attachments and the true nature of actual love, the only love that can heal and that can transform and transmute and transcend these trials and pains and sufferings is actual love. And that is an energetic expression that is completely unconditional. Yes. And for me, the, you know, someone was talking about being safe like like how how do I make you feel safe you you know how did it mm-hmm. and now I can honestly say and report that nobody has to make me feel safe I am safe with me now yeah but that's because I had to go through all this PTSD treatment. I had to see my little fragmented parts inside my mind. I had to see my six-year-old self run from me. And I call my doctor and I'm like, she's like gone. She was here. And then she's like, she left. And I don't know what to do. And she, my doctor's like, um, okay, well, you didn't make her home very safe for a long time. Yeah. She felt safe. You're going to have, you're going to have to build her trust. She doesn't know you as someone that she should trust yet. And I was like, I'll do anything. I don't care. I'm like, I'll never talk to guys again. I'll never do this. You know, I was like promising the thing. And and now I I spent a couple of years and I would literally every decision going to dinner, little Anna, do you want to go to dinner tonight? What are you feeling? Oh, you want to stay home and order in? So sorry. I'm going to have to cancel those dinner plans. Little Anna wants to stay in and order. So we're not going to be doing it. Who's little Anna? Shh, none of your business. Um, But more important than you. (laughs) And we're taught that this is selfish. But if we follow the Buddhist way, 
the greatest gift you will ever give the world and therefore your fellow human beings yeah. is your most healed self. Yeah. So, so you showing up for you is the only gift that matters for other people. And if you're not showing up for you, you will become depleted. You will reach a point of burnout. You likely will resent the individuals you're trying to serve or help, you know? Yes, exactly. It takes so much away from you, especially when you're not nurturing yourself to begin with. You know, it's just a constant give, 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 give. And then what are you left with? You know, you don't have much. And like, it's very interesting. And I've really noticed a shift even just like as life changes and you get older and like lots of my really good friends have families now, which is amazing. And I love them. And just how energy shifts because now they're like, oh, there's this little miniature person who's now getting all that love as they should, obviously. And then watching them either struggle with that or thrive within that with, again, their own self-care and their own self-love of that shift of being a parent, but I still need to take care of myself. And it's just so hard and it takes yeah. so much effort. Like you have to be on top of it all of the time to really try to take care of yourself and rest. Um, one of the big things I started also doing is saying no and resting and going out yep. way less. You know, I'm like, I would love to go have dinner, but I'm drained. Like, <laughs> Right. We, you know, one of the things that we're not taught in this fast-paced society, certainly, is another practice that I love in the Buddhist way. And, mm -hmm. I, and I've, I studied so many different forms of beliefs and religions yeah. and ideologies and philosophies. And the work that I do finding human trafficking is all over the world, but predominantly the, my, I work in Cambodia with uh, the center that I support. And so my girls are Buddhists, the survivors, the, they practice Buddhism. And so I've learned a lot from them. And the, the notion that would probably just make most people, at least in my country, pop off at the concept, but certainly in the West, active non-doing. Hmm. Yeah. What? Yeah. You want me to non-do? What are you talking about? I have, so, I have work, work is our God. The almighty dollar is the Lord almighty. And then God himself is work. And, and you tell someone you're working. Oh, that's completely fine. Oh, you don't. Oh, okay. I understand. Like, we'll meet next time. But you want to rest? Oh, so you're just not going to come out? Like, I don't understand hold up. <laughs> I am working on my peace, on my well-being. That is the most important work for me, certainly. But there's also, I love Gary Zukov, and he wrote, he, he was most known for, or he is most known for, he's very much alive and very much wonderful. But Gary Zukov is most known for the book, The Seed of the Soul. Mm -hmm. I love all of his books. But he always asks you, what is the courageous thing? If you're a workaholic, the courageous thing is to stop everything, yeah. lay down and do nothing. And active non-doing can take that to another level. So that means you're intentional. You're alert. You're not lazy. You're fully present. Yeah. But you are in the shape of your mind versus the, the externalized yeah. landscape. Oh, definitely. That's such a, an important thing to do. A lot of us 
are made to feel that we need to be on this hamster wheel all the time. And that's somehow supreme and superior to rest or active non-doing or or taking a night off or getting some peace of mind. And thankfully, language is changing because of podcasts like this and people having these conversations more prevalently now. But, But how often are we given room in society without judgment and with an unconditional energy that we can cancel a plan to just rest and relax and nobody has something to say about it or a look on their face about it. Yeah. It's very rare. For sure. Yeah. The judgment that kind of automatically comes with it or the shame that you then feel because you're saying what you need and someone isn't understanding and like. God forbid. How dare you take some time for yourself and just exist and give yourself what you need and nourish yourself, nourish your soul, nourish your body, all of these things that are so incredibly important. How dare you do that? You know, and like, it's, it's, uh, it's very tricky. I think, I don't know what the saying is, but something about like, you know, my availability doesn't equal my free time or something simple like that where like okay if there's sure I have the evening off from work and these things that does not mean I'm automatically available to you right I might need it for myself (laughs) you need it for yourself you need it for reset and and you know it's it's kind of like I always I always compare it to closing all the apps and turning off the phone and you know your phone starts to get a little shitty after a while. And we all know that if we close all the apps and just turn it all the way off, suddenly it's so much better. And that's what, that's the reset that we all need. We all need to close all the apps, just shut everything down and to have however long that phone needs to be turned off that reset point. And that's self-determined. And and in a world where the almighty dollar and work is the Lord, (laughs) we are heathens Mm. for resting. Yes. We are heathens for resting. And, you know, I I think back to my film and and just kind of the shame and guilt that this young woman is carrying with her because of her religion. And I keep keep trying to, with this narrative around this film, put religion onto many things, right? We, we, when we think, when we think religion, we think what she believes, Catholicism or, you know, Christianity or Muslim, you know, what Islam, whatever, Buddhism, whatever, uh, uh, spiritual or, or that kind of practice that you follow. But the truth is religion is anything that you believe so strongly in that it becomes God to you. And, and we do that to a lot more than just these, these beliefs in, you know, ascended master prophets that used to walk the earth and and say good wonderful things so i always i always ask myself what am i what am i putting above myself Hmm. is that honoring is that making me a better person a better soul a better spirit a better mind a better body or is it diminishing me in some way is it attempting to diminish me or or shadow my light in some way Hmm. And the truth is <laughs> a lot of things start to diminish your well-being when the focus is externalized. Religion initially, before it became what it became, the spiritual practice of religion was merely about 
a turn inward. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah. And then everyone started telling stories about what it's like to turn inward. And suddenly it was externalized and you were outward. Yeah. You can't talk about a turn inward. It's inward. It's personal. It's a personal dynamic. And we're so uncomfortable in the personal. We are so uncomfortable turning inward because it's like, you know, when you walk into a hotel and it's everything is so perfectly placed, there's one item here and one item there and just enough shampoo for the weekend. And then you you go into a hoarder's house and you open the door and stuff falls out, you know. I use this analogy as the mind. Mm. There's so much in there, stuffed and packed and crammed and nasty and unsanitary. And Lao Tzu, Chinese, wonderful, wonderful Chinese teacher, philosopher, he would say an empty house serves you most, right? Mm -hmm. So a house that you can walk around and you can move and you have space, uh, with a chair and a table and a bed and the things you need, but filled to the brim with everything. This is overwhelming for the for the system. So that the mind being this crammed closet full of items that jack in the box at you if you if you look inward makes you not want to look inward. Like I'll work, I'll fly somewhere, I'll go to a party, I'll go to a dinner, I'll anything to stay out of that house because it's miserable to be inside of it. There's too much going on. And with my film, this this young woman, the world of her mind became a, a bottomless abyss. Mm-hmm. And she was flailing and holding so tightly, trying to hold so tightly to her religion and then feeling her religion let her down. That one hit after the next of all these things that happened to her in her life. And of course, it's a film and these situations are extenuating, but we're seeing with the world, with everything that's going on, people are getting hit with stuff one right after the other. We're, as a collective, we are, not to mention the individual's journey on top of that. So what stops someone from going postal? What stops someone from, in all of their dysregulation of their nervous system, acting out because when this world the world of the body feels unsafe the world out there the big the real world it's impossible to navigate that safely because the world you live in inside this body this vehicle for the soul if you will it if the temperature is 110 degrees in the house nothing you do is going to be really great. <laughs> you're, you're, you can't. System is overheated at all times. And that's what it's like to be in an anxious system, you know, in an anxious oh. body. Yeah. It's just on that constant high alert, that fight, flight, freeze response. Like you never, you never get a break from it ever. And then how can you do these other things that can also cause that kind of reaction? But if you're already there, how do you not just, yeah, act out? How do you not just like explode from the inside out? Like, how do you take that control back, you know? And especially with the world as it has been, especially over the last few years, like it's been collective trauma after collective trauma, plus all of our individual traumas that happen, you know? And then 
trying to understand it all. And um, it's just the exhaustion that comes with all of that because so many of us, again, just don't know how to be kind to ourselves and soft with ourselves as you would a little kid who's next to you, you know what I mean? Or a best friend. Why don't you speak that way to yourself? Like you deserve that kind of kind words and support just to yourself, you know? And then when you get it from other people too, that just adds on to it, but you're not like reaching at it from anything, any direction, but then not actually getting what you need because you're like desperately reaching out for these, this support that might not even be there at the time. Well, yeah. And, and Don Miguel Ruiz, who I also love and have read every one of his books, he wrote the four agreements and such an incredible book, but he said a few things that I love. One of them is, well, one of them is don't believe me. Don't believe you and don't believe anybody else, which I really love. So go ahead and take that in. Right. But he, then he goes on to say happiness is love coming from you. Mm. Happy people don't hurt other people. Happy people don't shoot up a church like my character in my movie. Happy people don't go out in the world and harm people. And happiness, if in fact it is derived from love coming from us, would you think, you know, my, just keep referring back to Chloe, my cat, like, I love smushing her face and belly. Like, I just want to put my face in her whole little belly. And I could just love her. And she's like, mom, get off of me. Get away from me trying to run away. And I'm like, love me. Um, I don't need anything from that cat. I am obsessed with her and the joy I feel loving her, right? That is what love is. That is what happiness is. And he says, don't believe me. Don't believe you. Don't believe anybody else. Because the truth will always survive your skepticism. Mm. We used to believe, and I've, I've come to find that some people still do, but we used to believe that the world was flat. A lot of people said the world was flat and they would literally put you in prison for saying the opposite. Yep. The, the earth was always round. She's been round since she became, she came into existence. She round, boo. Is there. <laughs> she does not need your faith. She does not need your belief. She does not need you to tell her if she's flat around. She just is what she is. The truth just is what it is. Lies, incorrect and false beliefs need the power because you generate power. They need the power of your being placing its faith into that belief system in order for it to be alive. Santa Claus is very real right up until he isn't. Yep. Why? Because the power of belief and how wonderful that when you believe in something like Santa Claus, that it's magical and it's fun and exciting. And you bring so much yummy joy into the world because of that belief and people who don't believe, but remember believing are like, isn't it so cute? You know? And, and then people like me who were not allowed to believe because my parents were psychotic and were like, Santa is Satan misspelled. And I'm like, my brain, I'm like, I'm seven years old. So what do I go to do at Walmart? Like Santa's not real. Santa's not real to all the other children and ruining their fucking magic. Like it's so terrible. But, but the, the belief 
in something that is harmless, like Santa Claus, is so magical and so wonderful and so gorgeous. But it does, in fact, require all of your being, believing in that. And you know, when the child starts to like ask questions, you're like, oh, it's the beginning of the end. I started asking questions. That's that's sad maybe about Santa Claus. But if only, if only, if only we started to ask questions and unravel the beliefs in our lives, in our minds that are not true, lies that our mind tells us, if only we would ask questions, then then our higher self would be like, oh my God, she's doing it. She's doing the thing. She's asking the question. She's The answer's coming. It's going to come. And that's, I, I write, I, I think I'm on journal number 26 or 27, 200 page journals, 20 journal number 27 or something in the last two years that I've just like fill journals. Instead of grabbing my phone, I grab a pen and paper and I journal. And I thought that was the craziest thing when people would journal and I didn't understand it at all. And then it just started one day and I was like, I found a journal that I had a bunch of empty pages and I was writing all randomly in it. And then I finished it and I was like, oh, I need another notebook. And then I needed 20 more. I have asked myself every question fathomable, unfathomable. There is in science, we say there, they say there's what we know. There's what we know that we don't know. And then there's what we don't know that we don't know. And it's really fascinating because if you think about trying to discover, like trying to find the answer to a problem, you know, the problem, you know, it's there, you know, there's an answer. You just don't know what it is. You can search and you can ask questions and you can get help and you can find the answer to that question. But you cannot solve a problem you do not know exists. You cannot ask a question about something that you don't know is there. So how do you get to that higher level of yourself? How do you stop the cyclical dynamic of existence in the human form? It's it's an unraveling of the inside of yourself yeah, starts with building a relationship with yourself. And that's what my journal has become. It's become my friend where I say, well, why am I pushing back on this so hard? Why am I resisting this so hard? What wound is, is, is so, that's another thing going back to Don Miguel Ruiz for the multi, 14th time. He talks about in the beginning of the four agreements, he says, imagine a world where everyone is covered with open sores. If you bump up against someone, ow, that hurt. You hurt me. Well, did that person hurt you or did they brush up against you gently and you had an open sore that had been from a wound that predates you ever interacting with this person? So for me, I see resistance that way. I see resistance as my open sores. I'm, if I do blame someone initially, I immediately make amends the second that I get clarity again and I have a calm nervous system, but I tend to say, hold on, hold on, wait, 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 wait. I'm resisting this really hard and I need a moment. Why am I resisting this in this moment? And, and I'm grateful to have my little coven of friends that are just like, we're all just witchy together. We're like, let's, let's be little brujas with our cauldron stew and let's, let's dive into the depths of our existence and, and, you know, say the spells that will bring the truth to light. And, 
And it's, it's so beautiful because we're soul searching together. And Gary Zukov talks about spiritual partnerships in, in his book, Spiritual Partnerships. And he says that that's when individuals say, I'm going to show up for the growth of your soul. Yes. Until the day that I no longer grow your soul. And then I will release you back into the world. And so my friends are my spiritual partners. They are my spiritual family. And we we have hard, difficult conversations really gently and really beautifully because of this. Because, because Gary also says spiritual partners are unafraid to say the thing that is most likely to end the relationship. And this is not something that's unkind, you're a stupid bitch, likely to end the relationship. You know, like that's not what he's talking about. There are things that we see in another. And typically it's our mirror reflecting back, reflecting back into infinity, right? There are things that we see in another that we can offer them. If only we are fully, vulnerably truthful. I like to say, I like to say, this is my feeling. This is everything vulnerably yours, Annalyn, instead of sincerely yours. It's scary to say those things. You don't want to, you don't want to upset someone. So you just don't say things, but that's not love. That's not spiritual connection and spiritual partnership. That is not challenging someone that you care about to be in their authentic power, to show up as their highest self. That is not true friendship and connection. That is not true relationship. So how do you get to that space? Safety is important. So building that safety with you and your doctor, your therapist, being able to feel safe in yourself is important and key because you can only extend from that place. But so we'll we'll talk and I'll be like, babe, I am resisting what you're saying hard. And I want to punch you in the face, but I know it's not your face that needs to be punched. Probably no one's. I choose nonviolence typically. Um, but right now I'm feeling a little volatile. I need to find out the origin of this wound. This yeah. this open sore was on my body before you brushed up against me. I need to know where it came from and I need to know why it's still there. And I need to get to the bottom of this. And sometimes we do it together. Sometimes I take space, whatever the case may be. And what happens is that my skin starts to clear. Mm-hmm. One less open sore, one less wound on my arm that will get hurt if someone brushes up against it. Now the tissue is starting to close and heal. The infection is gone. And maybe there's a little scar, but the trigger isn't there anymore. The emotional charge has been removed. And that's all me, all me working on me, asking me, why don't I like this? Why don't, why don't I like this thing? Why does it strike such a chord with me? And those are questions that require they're not for the faint of heart. They require accountability. They require you to be willing to say, I fucked up, babe. I am fucking this up. And and without judgment of self, just with clarity of mind, right? I'm screwing this up and I'm, I'm going to figure it out. I'm just not there right now. Definitely. I love that like open wound visual, especially when it comes to like, We all have traumatic wounds, places everywhere, you know, and a lot of times we're not even totally aware of it. You know, like we don't know why things are triggering us. We don't know why this is making me want to like cry all of a sudden because you just said one thing and I don't know why now I'm angry and sad all at the same time. And I don't know why I'm feeling all these feelings. 
because we can't actually see <laughs> the wounds, you know? So having that visual is, uh, is very helpful to be able to bring up that kind of conversation and say to somebody like, I already have this wound and you brushed by and you affected it and yeah. affected me deeply. So now I'm reacting. Right. Now I need to sit in with that. Yeah. You said something really crucial. You said, we don't know why, but you know what's so interesting about what follows? We don't know why. Nothing. Nothing follows it. We don't ask why. We don't know why. And we just leave it at that. We're just like, okay, well, I don't know why. So I give up. <laughs> like, what? Why is that? the What? I was the but why kid. Okay. Like I got into so much trouble because I wanted to know how everything worked. I didn't know, want to know what time it was. I wanted to know how to build a clock. I wanted to know why everything, how everything, what, why, who, how. Tell me, tell me, tell me. I want to know. I want to learn. I am a student of existence. I am always ever learning. And I love learning. I love it so much. I'm like a little child. I'm a total absolute nerd if you hang out with me. And and I ask why. And I annoy the shit out of my friends because I'm like, why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Why do you think that that and that and that are together is? <laughs> and they're like, that didn't make any grammatic sense. And also please stop harassing and interrogating me. It's a fucking Tuesday morning like, calm down, you know? And, and then it's like, you no, know, you're my friends. So it's scuba gear. Let's dive deep. That's what it's like to be friends with me. Just get over yourself and get over this. And yes, I know this is annoying. It was so funny. One of my friends, I was in Costa Rica with him and I, I did one of the things that I do to like dig in because he had broken up with his boyfriend and he was feeling the hurt and pain of that. And I was like, I was like, okay, just, you know what? Look at me. And like, I do this creepy little thing where I stare, I eye gaze and like, it's so awkward and uncomfortable. And I just love making people awkward and uncomfortable if I think that there's a good ending to it. And so I was like, just tell me everything you want to say to him. Just say it to me. And he's like, oh gosh, oh gosh. And he, and he was so beautiful and so raw and he poured out his heart. And at the very end, he was like, okay you know, you're dealing with something similar. You tell me. And I was like, Oh no, 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 no. Absolutely not. This is, I, Oh, I hate this. Oh, he's like, no, you just made me do it. You have to, I was like, Oh, I don't like this at all. No, I do this to you guys. This is what I do. This is what it feels like. This is terrible. I don't like this at all. This is so awful. Ew, gross. I'm so sorry. I make this so uncomfortable for y'all. I'm going to continue to make it uncomfortable for y'all. Cause that's the nature of me. But like, also I'm really sorry. Cause this is awful. Do I really have to do this? Oh my God. And he made me do it. And I'm like, I'm like, by the end of it, I'm like, snot, dirty, messy crying. I'm like, so ugly crying not cute at all it's so messy and I was just like you know what I have something else to say and I'm like I'm like and we finished and we're laughing and we're watching this beautiful Costa Rican sunset and we're just like I'm sitting there I look at him and I'm like Benjamin I'm so sorry that I'm such a weird friend and he's like you really are <laughs> but I love you so much. And I was just like, I cannot believe that all this time, all of you guys have just suffered through me doing all these weird things and you never do that. He's the one who decided to do it back to me. And so now I've been laughing with my other friends who are like, yeah, you do that stuff all the time. And it's so annoying. And I'm like, but we get to these deep places with each other because we, we, they, my friends are so courageous. They're so brave and so raw and so willing to, to just be down for one 
whatever random thing Annalyn comes up with in her head after she read a new set of books or something. And, and I'm ref like in my reflection time, in my contemplation time, in my journal every morning and throughout the day, I'm doing that with myself. And yes. it, I will say it's funny because it's a lot easier to do it with yourself than it is to have your friends turn it on you and do it back to you. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is actually way worse than I thought it was. I thought it was like, because for me, it's so normal to do it with myself in the comfort of my home with my cat and my journal and no other noise. But it's like, it's really confronting to have someone looking at you and seeing you and you're exposing you. So it's, it's a raw, beautiful thing. But this is, this is honestly why I think my career, like acting and the world of filmmaking and storytelling is so metaphoric for a spiritual awakening, spiritual journey. Like, yeah. Yeah. Even it's a healing journey going through treatment therapy. It's like to, to the layers you have to like peel off or for me, I have to dive into and create layers for my characters. It's so it's kind of in reverse, but in order to go to the next level of your healed, healed self, going to the next layer of your spiritual self, going to the next layer of you, it, it, it's like dying and being reborn over and over. And how many times do you have to die in one lifetime? Die before you die to realize there is no death, but it's snakes, just skin after skin coming off the snake's body and this rebirth process. And it is not pretty and it is not fun. Oh my God, it's not fun. Everyone wants to be healed. No one wants to do the healing because the healing process is, oh, it's gnarly. Yeah, it is gnarly. It is rough. It is awful. But it's also so fucking beautiful. You know, like when you have those moments and you're just like, oh, you know, and like I've had moments where I've like been reading something and something will connect and I'm just I'll start crying because I'll be it'll just connect a piece for me for like my inner teenager who was yes. you know, of avoiding everything and escapism and just did not like did not want to deal. So I, you know, I just shoved everything places and she was a very hurt child, you know, she was, and she just did not know how to cope with it. Right. So now coming back and doing all this work and reading books, things just come up and you're just like, whoa, yeah. but then you sit with it. Yeah. And now it's like, now I just can't stop. Like it just keeps going. <laughs> But it is, those moments are beautiful. I had a moment with my 13 year old self and, and I was in a breath work practice and I was experiencing, I had one of the symptoms of my trauma with all the sexual abuse that I suffered as a child and sexual assault as a teenager and every kind of sexual misconduct you can imagine in my industry. I, I had a lot of frozen, trapped, traumatic, poisonous energy in my cells and my tissue and my muscles and my body. And so I'd done all this work on my mind and I had studied all these things and read all these books. And I, I mean, I was, I was Barnes and Noble's best customer, Audible's best customer, you know, like I, if, if there was something to read or listen to, I had purchased it and I had listened and read it, listened to it and read it. And I sat down with my doctor and I plopped on the couch and I was like, listen, I fixed myself from here to here, like my neck to my top of my head. I am good. There's just like some weird stuff going on in the body, but like, can we just get rid of that in the next three to six weeks maybe? Um, and then I can just move on and we can just leave this all behind and I'll be fully fixed. And I, I, uh, thousand percent believe this a thousand percent i thought this was going to take three to six weeks i was going to work out the, whatever the body stuff was it was really annoying and then that would be done and then we would be all good and whoo that was you know 
intensive outpatient later, you know, um, I, I was coinciding my treatments. I did PTSD treatment, post-traumatic stress disorder treatment. I, I did EMDR. So I did eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is such a powerful tool. It's really, really incredible. I'm grateful that I had a really incredible practitioner. I will say that if you are looking into PTSD treatment with EMDR, make sure that your doctor, I heard horror stories that apparently that some doctors don't do proper resourcing. My doctor did incredible resourcing and what resourcing is when you do EMDR, you're going into your mind. You have now the power of the CEO brain when you, when you hold onto the buzzers or you look at the lights because eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is about the connection between memories and our eye movement. So like REM, like rapid eye movement sleep, where all the images are coming through and our eyes are moving with the images. So our eyes, actually the muscle, the motor skill, right, of the eyes moving is fused with our imagery trauma memories. So mm-hmm. it found that if they could separate those two, you could get a wedge in between and you could remove the emotional charge. You could clean that infection of that open sore wound and start the healing process. And your mind wants to heal itself. So it presents you with the opportunity to do that if you if you clean the wound and, and allow for that space to be there. So EMDR is a powerful tool. But but in the process, you don't just go back into a gnarly memory and, and face it. My doctor was like, you bring in safety. So you bring in people that make you feel safe. I would bring Chloe in my mind. So if I went into a scene, Chloe was with me. In the beginning, when I was going into really gnarly sexual abuse memories, I would bring an army of analysts. And we're like, we're going to kick this motherfucker's ass, you know. Um, and and in my mind, I you would reframe the story by saying that instead of her being there by herself, being traumatized, she now has resources. She now has an army of analysts showing up, busting the door down to get the little baby out. And so the, I did this scene by scene, memory by memory. I busted the doors down of my trauma and took myself out of those memories and closed those wounds up and allowed that, that, that open sore to begin the process of healing in each incident. I coincided that because my one of my doctor friends in, in England said, you can't just do treatment. You have to do SE you have to do somatic experience. So he told me about breath work. He told me about sound bath healing. He told me about these different modalities that activate the cells of the body to release, to purge out this poison, this trapped. And he wrote an incredible book, actually. His name is Benjamin Fry. I have a lot of Benjamin friends. Um, His name is Benjamin Fry, and he wrote the book, The Invisible Lion. And it talks about how we trap these emotions in our body and we feel like a lion is chasing us and it's invisible because no one else can see it but us. And so uh, he was saying in order to release those trapped emotions, which are really just our trauma response not being allowed to play out. So it's not even what happened to us that's trapped in ourselves as poison. It's this inertia adrenaline cortisol that builds, builds, builds to run in our legs or to fight with our fists. And then it gets frozen in time and trapped in the body. And then it becomes toxic poison, right? So I was in this breath work and I had always had, my legs would go numb whenever I was with a partner, like a new guy, especially like I would lay there all night. He's sleeping soundly, like snoring so happy after like we're hanging out. And I'm like, ugh, 
How's that to sleep all night, huh? You little asshole. <laughs> so mad. Like, how dare you sleep and enjoy your rest? Ew. Um, and my, because my legs were numb the whole night and I was in excruciating pain and I would like rotate my ankles to just have some relief. But I was, it was like needles. It was so painful. And I, so I was in this breath work and the breath is flowing, it's pushing energy. And I'm noticing that it's circling in my body, in my torso, but it won't push past my hips. And I'm like, I, I'm, the more the energy comes, the more painful it's becoming because it's actually ha- activating all of these, this, this trauma needing to run in my legs, which I didn't know at the time, but that's what it was. And, and I'm like, and, and it's cut off at the hips. And so the energy of my breath is not getting down there to soothe my legs. So I'm just starting to really feel like I'm going fully numb, like I'm in freezing cold water or something. And it's so painful. And I was like, please, I was begging my mind, like, please, 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 whatever the blockage is, please, please just let me feel the energy of the breath work right now. It's a 20 minute practice. And then I'm out of here. And then you can go back to just trapping all the energy or whatever you want to do. But please, I'm excruciating pain. Help me, you know, and I'm begging my mind to just, and I see my 13 year old self in my mind's eye. And she's just looking at me like a 13 year old would, you know, she's just like, God, you're pathetic. Oh, look at you begging. Like, oh God, you're, are you really me? Like, this is so embarrassing. And this was the kind of energy that I was getting from my 13 year old self. Like my six year old self was so precious, but she just didn't trust me. So I could like, I was like, I'll do anything for her. And that kind of soothed her. She was on my team, but my 13 year old self was like, you think it's going to be that easy with me? You have another thing coming, bitch. I mean, she was cold as ice and and she was and i lived as her for a long time and in this moment i literally was like i was like i'll do anything i'll do anything and she's just like not having it and and my mind gave me the answer mm. and all of a sudden into my mind came the thought she's doing this she's the one blocking the energy and i was like it's you isn't it you're the one blocking the energy to my legs And the next thought that followed, which was the gift my mind gave me, was this is how she saved your life. And all of a sudden, I'm in this intense breath where there's so much energy going. I'm in excruciating pain in my legs, but everything kind of slows into slow motion. And I look at her in the face, in my mind's eye, and I say, thank you so much. You saved my life you're cold and you're sharp and you're sarcastic and you're hard and you're, you feel a little mean, but you had to be, didn't you? You had to be, or I never would have lived through all of this. You're the reason I'm still alive. Thank you. Thank you so much. And she looked at me in my mind's eye, and this is all happening as if it's like in real life, it's playing out. So especially when you have DMT going from breath work, like our, our lungs secrete so much DMT. So I was like getting visuals in my mind. And she starts crying. And all of a sudden, all the breath flooded my legs immediately. All the energy went through my legs and I could feel my legs finally. And I was just, I, they, the next moment was a kind of a, a hold and scream, which we do inside breath work, which is why it's so healing. And I fucking raged. Like I was like, ah, ah, and I just like let it. And, and it was years years of being trapped under my perpetrator, wanting to run and meet him sitting on my legs and not letting me move. And, you know, and all of that was trapped in there. And she was stopping me from feeling it because it was too much for me. She was trying to save my life. And I had seen her as this, this kind of like 
a little scary, slight villainous part of me that was like, I had to like tiptoe around. And the truth was she was the one trying to protect me more than any other part. She was like, look at how pathetic you are. You can't stand up against this stuff. Look at how innocent she is. She can't handle this. I have to be tough. I have to be jaded. I have to be dark. I have to be intense. I have to wear leather and spikes and middle fingers to the sky and tell everyone to fuck off. I have to do that or we're not going to survive. And what a beautiful, wonderful, wonderful being she was to to be able to do that and have the wherewithal at 13 years old to do it and to then become my most predominant part when I was dealing with disassociative identity disorder. She Mm -hmm. was the one who was always there to pop up. If someone did something fucked up, she was in their face, you know, and I survived because of her. And thankfully now that I've integrated so much and now that I've been able to heal so much, I, I'm like, let me take it from here. You know, I can do this with a different energy. I can do this with a compassion or a kindness that is powerful and fierce and will not take shit, but doesn't have to do it from the fear of what's going to happen to me. I can do it for the love of protecting me. And that moment became a monumental milestone in my healing because suddenly I saw a lot of things very differently. I saw everyone who was attacking in the world as, as the villains I play on screen. They don't think they're villains. They think they're doing what they have to do to survive the environment they're in. And it's given me the ability to love the difficult ones the ones that aren't so easy to love. And it started with loving me because I wasn't so easy to love. And I think that if my character in my film (laughs) would have been able to love the parts of her that she was in such shame over, she never would have walked in that church with that AR-15 and fired all those shots into that crowd. And there would be no movie. And that would be a wonderful thing because that story would be less relevant in our world today. So mental health isn't a part of the conversation. It is the conversation. I love that. Yeah. I have to say I have literal chills just everywhere right now listening to that story. So thank you so much for sharing that. That is really incredibly powerful and definitely something that people need to hear And like, as someone who has like, I know that inner chat, like inner teenager is still working through, you know, and again, same with me, like she's, she can be mean. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And um, yeah, it's just, we need to find that love and that empathy for ourselves and especially those parts of ourselves because they're there for a reason. You know, they're there for a reason and understanding what that reason is and seeing it fully and seeing, saying like, I see you and I know why you're here and I love you for it. Like that's everything, you know, and that's such an integral part of healing and learning how to actually like love yourself fully, forgive yourself for the things that you hold on to, you know, that you know, you don't need to be holding on to those negative feelings, you know, you can forgive yourself, you know, because like, we all hurt people when we're hurt, you know, that's an unfortunate thing. But 
learning how to see that and then forgive yourself in turn, as you've said, like you learn how to see this in other people and have empathy for these other people who are fighting so hard, you know, and they're struggling so much and that's how they get seen and make noise and they don't know what else to do because they've been battling for so long, you know, and how to do that is just absolutely incredible and so important. Well, I hope that, you know, I hope that my journey is, that's the thing about our stories, right? You, you hope at the end of the day, you can't change it. You can't go back and take it all away. So at the least you hope that it adds value to someone else's story. So thank you for letting me come on and share with you. And thank you for doing a podcast about this crucial topic that we need to speak more about. So thank you. Thank you. I really, yeah, I very much appreciate it. And honestly, like reaching out to you, I just had this gut feeling like, and I don't even, I don't even know why I just saw, <laughs> and I just, it just came out of nowhere. And I was like, you know, I just had this feeling, you know? And so I listened, it was one of those things. I was like, no, Michelle, you should listen to your gut. It's telling you to do something. We would lot better in the world if we listen to our inner guidance a little bit more yeah yeah definitely yeah so I'm very glad I listened and I'm very glad we were able to have this conversation and thank you for sharing so much about the film and about yourself as well it is so helpful when people hear other stories and other sides of things and other experiences so that they can relate either relate to it or understand it as much as possible you know Well, if people want to see the film, it's called Condition of Return. It's with Dean Cain, Superman, (laughs) and Natasha Henstridge. And it's a passion project. It's an indie, but we we put everything into it. and, And we hope that it's a conversation starter. It is premiering theatrically in the U.S. in a limited release uh, on Friday, so September 22nd. It will be out streaming October 24th. So in between, you can watch it on VOD or whatever. But yeah, it's called Condition of Return. So check it out. Amazing. Well, congratulations on that as well. That is very exciting. And thank you all again for listening. This was a beautiful episode. Thank you, Annalyn. And until next time, this is Moving Beyond Stigma.